This is the podcast Icy Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Today I want to talk about an um, article that is already heavily quoted and will be quoted uh, for quite some time, and that is the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. Now this appeared in Critical Care Medicine back in January of this year, and this is the um, revision of the initial guidelines that were published back in 2004. This is a large multinational uh, cooperative to try to identify what are the currently best practices in management of the septic patient and based on evidence that we have currently in the literature. Um, there are numerous authors um, uh, on this paper and numerous organizations to give you a sense of some of the cooperating organizations includes the American Association of Critical Care Nurses, the American College of Chest Physicians, American College of Emergency Physicians, Canadian Critical Care Society, European Society of Clinical Microbiology, European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, uh, Society of Critical Care Medicine, and the list goes on and on. And what it he, what this uh, document is is really an attempt to develop a consensus of what is the best method of managing the patient um, in the intensive care unit suffering from sepsis or septic shock. We have in previous podcasts talked about some of the basic science of um, sepsis and septic shock, and the reality is is that sepsis is a very significant. Uh, killer and cause of organ failure and organ dysfunction in the intensive care unit. More and more um, groups, um, both uh, government groups and billing groups in the United States are probably going to be looking at consensus papers such as this to assure that they are getting value in their health care. Um, we have the ventilator bundle uh, which many intensive care units are now adhering to try to reduce the incidence of ventilator-acquired pneumonia in intensive care units. And hospitals are being judged uh, on whether they're adherent or not to those practices. Uh, and we'll probably see similar types of things when it regards to um, the management of sepsis and septic shock. It is my opinion that if you care for the critically ill patient in whatever capacity, you need to be aware of the contents of this document, whether it's as an ICU physician, um, a, a surgeon, nurse, a respiratory therapist, uh, or a paramedic. The standards set forth uh, in the Surviving Sepsis Campaign document are really impact um, all of the care from the pre-hospital environment to the emergency department certainly to the intensive care unit. It is a consensus document and what does that mean? Well, I'd imagine if you took ten of your best friends in a room and said we're going to order a pizza and we're going to order this pizza based on consensus that one person will like anchovies and everything else and by the time you get around the room you have uh, developed um, a liking for a cheese pizza because the consensus will be that we get a cheese pizza. So certainly there are concessions uh, when we develop consensus documents. Not everyone agrees. When we take ask the question what is one and one, we know that the answer is two. We don't need a consensus to tell us that uh, because what the answer is is factual and it's non-disputed. Frequently we have to develop consensus uh, uh, when uh, the uh, 
results aren't factual, or, or I shouldn't say aren't factual, but aren't crystal clear and, and are, are non-debatable. Um, certainly when the, the um, um, first surviving sepsis campaign document came out in 2004, there are differences between this document and the one published in 2004. And what's in this document is also going to change. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be an updated document in 2010 or sometime later. So, But it is the best that we have now. And I think if you're practicing state-of-the-art critical care, you would need at least to be aware of what this document contains. So let's get to it. They graded evidence um, using uh, an evidence-based approach, um, a, a method um, that uh, is used in evidence-based systems that, that classifies quality of evidence as high or a grade A, moderate, known as grade B, or low as grade C or very low, grade D, much like um, grades in a school. And the grading, and then there's a grade system classifies recommendations as either strong, grade one, or weak, grade two. So you can see things that are a grade A, uh, and a grade one, and that would tell you that the quality of evidence is good and the recommendation is strong or weak. Um, strong recommendation uh, in the document is regarded in, in, in the phrase we recommend and weak recommendations the authors write we suggest. Now reading from the surviving sepsis campaign document it says the implications of calling a recommendation strong are that most well-informed patients would accept the intervention and that most clinicians use in most situations. There may be circumstances in which a strong recommendation cannot be or should not be allowed for an individual patient because of that patient's preferences or clinical characteristics that make the recommendation less applicable. Being a strong recommendation does not automatically imply standard of care. That's an important point. For example, the stronger recommendation for administration of antibiotics within one hour of the diagnosis of severe sepsis, although desirable, is not currently the standard of care uh, uh, as verified by current practices. Here's what I also find it interesting that when we talked about that, you know, these are consensuses and therefore they are um, some compromise made. It says differences of opinion among committee members about interpretation of evidence, wording of proposals, or strength of recommendations were resolved using a specifically development set of rules. Now this is kind of neat here. What they say is that the main approach of converting diverse opinions into a recommendation was as follows. Number one, to give a recommendation a direction or for or against the given action, a majority of votes were to be in favor of that direction, with less than 20% preferring the opposite direction. There was a neutral vote allowed as well. To call a given recommendation strong rather than weak, 70% votes were required. Number three, if less than 70% of votes indicated a strong preference, the recommendation was assigned a weak category of strength. So when you're looking at the document and you're seeing strong recommendation or weak recommendation, that doesn't necessarily mean based on irrefutable science. That's based on the votes of those people on the committee. Now certainly the people on the committee are some of the thought leaders in critical care. But again, keep them in mind that this is a consensus document. Now, the initial resuscitation uh, in the surviving sepsis campaign is broken down to things you should do in the first hour 
certainly things you should do in the first six hours. It assumes that we are able to identify a time zero, at which point a, a patient begins to act septic or has a surge type response. What is a septic response? What is a surge response? We've discussed this in other uh, uh, previous podcasts, and I don't really want to um, delve into that too much. But what they what they go into is defining um, um, sepsis-induced shock as hypoperfusion, uh, hypotension persisting after initial fluid challenge or blood lactate concentrations greater than four millimoles per liter. So somebody is in shock or they have an elevated lactate. And you should have some sort of protocol or method of resuscitating this patient to um, uh, recognize that hyperfusion exists and not delay uh, admission to the ICU. During the first six hours of resuscitation, the goals of initial resuscitation of sepsis-induced hypoperfusion should include all of the following as one part of treatment protocol. Okay, this is what we're saying to do. Get the central venous pressure to between 8, and millime- 8 to 12 millimeters of mercury. Have a mean arterial pressure of greater than 65 millimeters of mercury. Get the urine output greater than half a cc per kilogram per hour and a central venous, excuse me, a central venous, i.e. a superior vena cava, or a mixed venous oxygen saturation between greater than 70% or greater than 65% if you're using a mixed venous saturation. So there are four things that they want you to accomplish in the first six hours. Going over those, number one, central venous pressure between 8 to 12. Why? Indicating that you've adequately resuscitated the patient. Now certainly, people are going to argue about the complications and problems of central venous pressure, how predictable it is. Maybe we should use pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. Maybe we should use some other surrogate. I didn't write the document. Certainly, you're right in, in arguing those. A mean arterial pressure greater than 65 millimeters of mercury certainly has a need to try to improve perfusion to flow sensitive organs. Getting the urine output greater than half a cc per kilo per hour. Um, again, keeping in mind that in an elderly patient who has a decreased ability to concentrate their urine, that may not be adequate. And then using either a, a central venous uh, oxygenation. Uh, saturation of greater than 70% or a mixed venous saturation from a PA catheter of greater than 65%. Now, they provide the rationale for this, and the first is that early goal resuscitation has been shown to improve survival for emergency department patients presenting with septic shock in randomized controlled single center study. Now this is clearly referring uh, to Rivers work where patients came into the emergency department, they were um, um, goal-directed resuscitated and had better outcomes. Now, we've talked about that particular paper and that modality in, in previous podcasts that I would refer you back to those. What a critic would say is that these recommendations are being made on a single a, a single prospective trial at a single institution in emergency department patients and perhaps that's not applicable to the ICU patient population. That doesn't happen to be my opinion but I think that's a valid um, criticism that one person could potentially levy about trying to do uh, early goal-directed resuscitation. The work of Rivers has been well is, is well known, it's well published, and it's well respected, but those criticisms are certainly valid. Certainly the criticism about using central venous pressure um, uh, is, is fair. And if you've ever heard Rivers talk before, he, he's also critical of that himself and said that wasn't something that he had actually chose. Uh, that was by a previous um, uh, previous um, 
guidelines that he adopted that. Um, uh, when you read the rationale in the in the um, surviving sepsis um, um, manuscript, it says the consensus panel judged use of central venous and mixed venous oxygen saturation targets to be equivalent. So whether you're using a mixed venous saturation or a superior vena cava saturation, by this consensus group, they were deemed uh, equivalent. Either intermittent or continuous measurements of oxygen saturation were judged to be acceptable. So if you don't have a PA catheter in someone, or you're not a big believer that PA catheters improve outcomes, you're reading the literature, then perhaps if you have a central venous catheter in the superior vena cava, you can draw uh, a venous blood gas from the distal port and send that to um, the lab where you would want to make sure that the venous saturation from that was greater than 70%. Now, although blood lactate concentrations may lack precision as a measure of tissue metabolic status, elevated levels in sepsis support aggressive resuscitation. So this is why they're trying to get that lactate down. Uh, they go on to say that in mechanically ventilated patients or patients with known pre-existing decreased ventricular compliance, a higher target of central venous pressure should be obtained, and that should be 12 to 15 millimeters of mercury to account for the uh, uh, impediment to filling. So those of you who are saying, you know, the central venous pressure is not uh, predictive, you're right. They're taking that into account. If you have somebody on mechanical ventilation, that increase intrathoracic pressure is going to elevate the CVP, uh, you're right. If somebody has a poor ventricular compliance, that's going to require a higher filling pressure to maintain the same end diastolic volume, you're right. And therefore, using the surviving sepsis criteria, you need to push that CVP up to 12 to 15. Other things is that you need to make the same considerations of people uh, who have increased abdominal pressure or diastolic dysfunction. I would say that those of you who are taking care of burn victims and you've got uh, burns on the chest wall or abdominal wall that are decreasing the chest wall compliance, again, that would be something that would make you want to shoot for that CVP of 12 to 15. Reading again from the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, they said recently published observational studies have demonstrated an association between good clinical outcome in septic patients and a mean arterial pressure greater than 65 millimeters of mercury as well as central venous oxygen saturation uh, measured in superior beta cava inter intermittently or continuously of s greater than 70 percent. Um, the reference for that uh, again this is straight out of the surviving sepsis campaign but the, the reference that they use for that is of Arpula and colleagues in Intensive Care Medicine 2005, pages 1066 to 1071. So you don't need the PA catheter. Again, using your central venous catheter, draw venous blood gases and measure that saturation and get it above 70%. They go on to say that studies of patients with shock indicate that mixed venous oxygen saturation runs 5 to 7% lower than central uh, venous oxygen saturation. So again, that is why you've got the target of an SVO2 uh, from a PA catheter being about 5% less. They want you to get all of these things accomplished within the first six hours. So during the first six hours of resuscitation, a severe sepsis or septic shock, they get that uh, uh, the uh, vena cava saturation to 70%. If it's not achieved with a fluid resuscitation, uh, or your central venous pressure, then they talk about the consideration of transfusion of rack packed red blood cells to a matocrit of greater than 30% or the use of dobutamine uh, to increase uh, the flow. 
These are not my recommendations. Um, these are the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. I, I don't know. Um, um, I, I would be a little bit hard-pressed before I would start pushing that, that hemoglobin up to 30% with the blood. But if somebody remained dysoxic, despite adequate filling pressure and adequate perfusion, uh, that would certainly be the next thing to do. Um, they go on to say that based on clinical assessment and personal preference, a clinician may deem either blood transfusion if hematocrit is less than 30% or dobutamine the best initial choice to increase oxygen delivery and thereby uh, elevate uh, venous oxygenation when fluid resuscitation is believed to be already adequate. That's probably a good place to take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We're talking about the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, and uh, we just finished talking about some guidelines uh, by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign on fluid resuscitation. Now we're going to talk about making the diagnosis of um, septic shock. What the uh, guidelines have recommended that obtaining cultures before antibiotic therapy is initiated, I think everyone is pretty much on board with that, but certainly no cause and delay in antibiotic administration. And um, what's recommended is that at least two blood cultures are obtained before antibiotics with at least one drawn through a percutaneous line and one drawn through each vascular access device unless the device was inserted within 48 hours. So if you have a patient and they look septic shock, they have an arterial line and they have a central venous catheter, then they get a peripheral stick, a blood culture obtained through the arterial line, one drawn certainly from the central venous catheter. Um, cultures of other sites, preferably quantitative, such as the urine, cerebral spinal fluid, wounds, respiratory secretions, and other body fluids that have been the source of infection should also be obtained before antibiotic therapy um, if not associated with a significant delay in antibiotic administration. But again, don't delay antibiotic administration. The key is we have to get several things going at once. It doesn't take much time to get these cultures going and you can obtain the cultures as you've ordered the antibiotics and run this in parallel. It is recommended that two cultures be obtained, of two or more blood cultures be obtained, and if the catheters have been in place for more than 48 hours, at least one blood culture should be drawn through each lumen of the vascular access device. We'll read that again. At least one blood culture should be drawn through each lumen of each vascular access device. So if you're dealing with a multi-lumen catheter, they recommend drawing a, a, a blood culture through each of the lumens. I can't say that that's something that we do in practice. In addition, if the culture is drawn through the vascular access device, it's positive much earlier than the peripheral blood cultures i.e. greater than two hours earlier. The data support the concept that the vascular access device is the support is the source of the infection. So what they're saying there is look at the time at which the blood cultures are returning positive. If you get a result positive at noon on your central line and then at 3.30, 4 o'clock you're getting the peripheral bloods drawn from say the patient's left antecubital fossa is positive. Based on the evidence reported in the surviving sepsis campaign that would indicate that the source of the infection is the central venous catheter. Now we always run into the question is what is SIRS and what is an infection and this is where we get into what is an interesting and developing part of sepsis science and that's the use of biomarkers. And they say in the in the manuscript that the potential role for biomarkers for diagnosis of infection in patients presenting with severe sepsis remain undefined. The procalcitonin level, 
although often useful, is problematic in patients with acute inflammatory pattern from other causes such as postoperative shock. We maybe haven't talked about what this procalcitonin um, uh, level is, and what they're doing with procalcitonin level is they're drawing a level, I believe, for three or four days, and they have a threshold mark on that. And if the threshold is below a certain number, what that's doing, much like you would see with cardiac isoenzymes, that would indicate that the condition that the patient is having is a surge-type response and not likely related to infection. This is something that is a developing science, and I don't think that it's something that um, um, we has developed quite to the point where it has become a, a standard approach in the septic patient. If this bears fruit, the advantage of this is is that we see a patient that they look infected, they have plenty of reasons to be kind of a surgery type response. Uh, maybe a post-op fever, maybe a, um, a little bit of a surge response. And we start antibiotics, we start our quest looking for the source of infection. And 24, 48 hours go by, and the patient seems to be getting better, but the cultures remain sterile. Well, is it that we, we're treating nothing, or are we treating something? The idea with the biomarkers are is that they provide another piece of data that we can confidently say, well, look, the procalcitonin, the procalcitonin level has not gone up. There's a, this is a biomarker that which should be elevated in the face of sepsis. Therefore, we can confidently reduce uh, and decrease the antibiotic therapy. And that's clearly advantageous because a lot of the antibiotics we give are toxic to the kidneys, and we're certainly worried about the likelihood of uh, changing a patient's flora or developing multiple drug resistance or problems like C. difficile colitis. And that's the future of where we're going to be at with biomarkers. Now, when it comes to the antibiotics, getting the antibiotics up as early as possible, and according to the guidelines, within the first hour of the recognition of septic shock and severe sepsis without septic shock, appropriate cultures should be obtained before initiating antibiotic therapy, but should not prevent prompt administration of antimicrobial therapy. Now, this now we're given a time limit of one hour from the time we first initiate or first uh, a feel that a patient um, is uh, in septic or septic shock. And the reason for this is really goes back on the Kumar data. Um, and that's uh, the original for that is a Kumar and colleagues critical care medicine in 2006, is that there is an almost an exponential increase in mortality associated with the delays of initial antibiotic therapy. Now you're thinking to yourself, well certainly we should be able to initiate antibiotics within an hour. It seems like we should, but when you start thinking about the logistics of what goes involved, what, what becomes involved in giving somebody antibiotics in a prompt period of time, somebody writes an order, the order sits on the chart. Somebody takes the order off, puts it into a computer. That is, if you're not using, you know, physician computer entry, which a lot of hospitals have gone to, certainly we've gone to now. Now the order appears somewhere in the pharmacy. Somebody has to mix the drug. The drug is mixed. Now a courier needs to take it from the pharmacy and deliver it to the unit where it sits in a bin. Somebody hands it to the nurse. they got to set up a pump, set up an infusion line, find access, and deliver the drug. It seems like that should take less than an hour, but in reality, each of those steps has inherent delays. So we really need to change our paradigm that people feel that the pressure is on to get that antibiotic going and moving in a quick fashion. Some people have argued that there should be antibiotics that are pre-mixed, ready to go out the door as soon as an order comes in to compress this timeline to get the antibiotics there promptly.
What the surviving sepsis group says about this is that if an antimicrobial agents cannot be mixed and delivered promptly from the pharmacy, establishing a supply of premixed antibiotics for such urgent situations is an appropriate strategy for ensuring prompt administration. Make sure you choose the right antibiotics. Um, and it go, they go on because because patients with severe sepsis or septic shock have little margin for error in the initial choice of uh, therapy, the initial selection of antimicrobial therapy should be broad enough to cover all likely pathogens. This seems to make sense. Use your typical triple antibiotics. Make sure that you're getting something broad spectrum. Um, the other thing is, is that patients with... Uh, um, uh, severe sepsis or septic shock warrant broad-spectrum therapy until the causative organism and its antibiotic susceptibilities are defined. Restriction of antibiotics as a strategy to reduce the development of antimicrobial resistance or reduce cost is not appropriate initial strategy in this patient population. Basically, they're saying hit them with the big guns. And once you start getting antimicrobial data back in 24 to 48 hours, start restriction. Don't be one of these losers who start people on triple antibiotics, big guns, and let them sit on there for 7 or 10 days, even though that something is sensitive to a first-generation cephalosporin. That's, to me, in, in, in my opinion, it's irresponsible for starting, starting somebody who's got a very virulent uh, and resistant uh, infection with something like ANSEF. Okay, use the right tool for the right job, whether you're using a big gun antibiotic to kill a, a flea, or if you're trying to uh, use a pea shooter to end up killing a gorilla, make sure you've got the right target and the right tool. They go on to say that if you think you're going against pseudomonas combination therapy uh, for patients with known or suspected pseudomonas infection as a cause for severe sepsis, combination empirical therapy for neutropenic patients with severe sepsis, um, and um, when used empirically in patients with severe sepsis, they suggest that combination therapy should not be administered for greater than three to five days. De-escalation of the most appropriate single therapy should be performed as susceptibility profile is known. They go on to provide their rationale, and it's, you know, it is interesting. They say that although no study or meta-analysis has convincingly demonstrated that combination therapy produces superior clinical outcome for individual pathogens, in a particular patient group, combination therapies do produce in vitro, in vitro, in a glass plate, synergy against pathogens in some models, although such synergy is difficult to define and predict. And that's something that's just a basic point that I think people often overlook, is that the idea of synergism of, say, a beta-lactam and aminoglycoside is something that's been demonstrated in vitro, not in vivo, and is apparent with Q8-hour dosing, and it is not apparent when we do Q24-hour dosing, which many ICUs have gone to. We'll take a brief time out and be back in a moment. The final topic that we're going to talk about in this first part of this two-part uh, series will be source control, and we have talked about in, in previous podcasts not associated with the new Surviving Sepsis Guidelines about source control. And if you're um, basically source control is what is initiated this massive surge response. Is it a piece of gangrenous colon or is it a um, ruptured appendix or is it a necrotizing soft tissue infection? All the antibiotics and vasopressors and steroids and everything else in the world are not going to make a difference unless you 
get source control and that is prompt source control and what's unique about this is that we've always said try to get source control as quickly as possible is that they've actually applied a timeline that we need to identify and definitively obtain source control within six hours hopefully within six hours on the onset of sepsis here's what they say they say we recommend that a specific anatomical diagnosis of infection requiring consideration for emergent source control example necrotizing fasciitis diffuse peritonitis cholangitis intestinal infarction be sought and diagnosed or excluded as rapidly as possible and they give that a grade one c and within the first six hours following presentation now from six hours of presentation not six hours from consultation. If you're the surgeon and you get kind of the patient presents to the emergency department at noon, gets put up to the ICU at one o'clock, you get consulted at four o'clock, you're already four hours into this. They want source control within two more hours. They go on to say that if you can get source control for from means other than surgery, go for it. They write that we further recommend that all patients presenting with severe sepsis be evaluated for the presence of a focus. Uh, on infection amendable to source control measures, specifically the drainage of an abscess or local infect focus on infection, the debridement of infected necrotic tissue, the removal of potentially uh, infected device, or the uh, definitive control of a source of ongoing microbial contamination. When source control is required, the effective intervention associated with the least physiological insult be employed. Example, percutaneous rather than surgical drainage of an abscess. And any surgeon who's, who's thinking is certainly thinking that you don't want to take a patient who's acidotic, not making urine, onto vasopressors uh, to the operating room to take out a gallbladder or perhaps a percutaneous cholecystostomy tube will do. Now, there is a caveat in this, and the asterisk has to deal with necrotizing pancreatitis. They suggest, and, and this is consistent with the literature that's this is consistent with the literature that's been around um, for several years, is that when infected peripancreatic necrosis is identified as a potential source of infection, definitive intervention is best delayed until adequate demarcation of viable and non-viable tissue has occurred. And they make this recommendation because randomized control trials comparing early versus delayed surgical intervention for peripancreatic necrosis shows better outcomes with the delayed approach uh, over the early approach. That is the first half of this two-part series on the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. And again, um, if, if you've been a listener to this podcast for any time, um, this, a lot of this is broken down in further detail in the podcast on Sepsis 1 and Sepsis 2. But again, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign is widely distributed. It is something that I think anybody in any intensive care unit should know about. On the next podcast, we'll talk about what type of fluid should we use and how should we give them. What are the vasopressors that are recommended? What are their names? How should we use them? What should we use in combination? Corticosteroids seem to be used every day for just about everything, including the heartbreak of psoriasis. When should we use them with sepsis? And what should we do about diagnosing potential adrenal insufficiency? Recombinant human-activated protein C. When should we use blood? And what are some of the things and how we roll in the ARDSnet trial and issues of uh, what's recommended for sedation, analgesia, and neuromuscular blockade? What kind of glucose control? What are the magic numbers that the surviving sepsis campaign used there? And what about renal replacement therapy when required? Those items will be covered in the second podcast on this topic. You've been listening to ICU Rounds. Um, we thank you for downloading. My name is Jeffrey Guy. Bye-bye.